What is good? My name is Tim Karen. This is the Performance Health Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about body composition on web show number seven. Myself, Corey, Will Greenberg, we're going to go into all the things you need to understand and appreciate about body compositional testing. My big point of emphasis is I thought it was probably one of the most underrated pieces in all of performance testing. We get a foundational knowledge of how much lean muscle mass we have versus how much fat mass we have. And if we're looking to improve force, if we're looking to improve power, if we're looking to improve anything related to what's going to be the product of having more muscle mass, you're going to want to understand body composition and you're going to want to understand how to test that, when to test that, and who to test that with. Will actually had some great insights looking at how does this influence behavior and how can I modulate my actual performance program by establishing habits, how establishing routines, understanding the psyche, as well as the quantifiable data we can get from a body compositional assessment. If you like this podcast, you got to become a member of the PH curriculum. You get access to the entire web show from the video format, the transcripts, the notes and resources. And that dives into a 50 module curriculum broken up into training, nutrition, movement, and coaching. We're going to have suggested modules and suggested material to dive into in each web show, only accessible to the members of the PH curriculum. So if you like what you're hearing here, you're only going to like the PH curriculum even more. Highly suggest you get to become a member immediately. You're not going to regret it. We also have a promotion going. If you sign up for the curriculum, you'll get a free copy of How to Become a Strength Coach, your periodized program to becoming a strength conditioning coach. Must have resource for any and all strength conditioning coaches. You're not going to regret it. If you're listening to this podcast, that probably means you were a strength coach or want to be a strength coach. And man, do I have the resource for you. It's called How to Become a Strength Coach, Periodizing Your Career in Strength Conditioning. This is your start to finish seminal resource to get you to becoming the best possible strength coach you can ever be. You can get your copy along with access to our course at phpodcast.com. This is a must-have for any strength conditioning coach or any aspiring strength conditioning coach out there. It will not only give you a step-by-step tutorial on how to become a strength coach, it will help you optimize your career every step of the way. Absolute must-have. If you like this podcast, get the book. Okay, Tim, we got body comp today. Obviously, everyone coming to us has body comp goals they want to achieve. So why does it matter for athletes? Well, I'm going to start from the top saying, how do we really evaluate a philosophy versus another philosophy or a training system versus another training system, right? We, we all know we want to run faster, jump higher, throw something further, maybe go a little bit longer or have better capacity. We know we want those things and we can start to look at maybe a lot of philosophies are really capable of doing that, right? We, we, we definitely know that, right? We know that. You have an ideology that in terms of strength conditioning, and if they're a novice, we probably can make a lot of headway with changing that. But I think the one thing that we probably can't cheat is did we increase cross-sectional muscle area. And as we look through any research article looking at force or force velocity, there's always going to be a note in there of like universally cross-sectional muscle area is a really important component of improving any of those qualities, whether you're running faster, jumping higher, or throwing something further. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to look at why we need to test body comp, it's simply that. Are we having more functional mass, relatively speaking, a non-functional mass? Do I have more contractile tissue and less fat tissue or non-contractile tissue? And if we look at it from the context of 
apples to apples. You know, if we're trying to compare the performance metric of, hey, we want to look at this person's now more capable of running faster, jumping higher, throwing something further, going longer. And they have maybe nothing that we could really pinpoint as to why that happened. We just kind of happened. How could we reproduce that? How do we really know? And it's not necessarily trying to be dismissive of the great results that we get. It's trying to understand better of how we got those results. And then looking at it objectively and saying, did we increase more functional tissue and decrease less functional tissue or non-functional tissue? Yes or no. And body composition's the only way to do that. But the other part for us is we got to talk about this idea of scope and what we can do and what we can really apply in our setting to understand how we made change. And every one of us, regardless of your experience, regardless of your knowledge, is going to be able to utilize a body compositional tool within their setting. So not only that, you know, one of the things that I thought was so great about functional movement screen we talked about recently is the blood pressure of movement. Well, body composition is the blood pressure of your strength conditioning program, in my opinion. If we look at that from the context of it's how good are you? You can't cheat muscle gain. You just can't. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you can do ergogenic aids and you can do pharmaceuticals, but as a whole, like majority of college and professional athletes are not. And the quality of your strength conditioning program determined is determined by probably how hard you're working, how well you do those things that you're asking your athletes to do over a long period of time. And that should be manifesting in more, more lean body mass and less fat mass. And not only that, you get a really good indicator of how good you are from that like zero to sixth year of that training session all the way out to how good you are in between. So if I'm going to evaluate your program from what you can do when you have your athletes in there, we all know that it's probably going to be completely offset by what they're doing outside of that. So what's the concentric circle off of your training program? You know, you have really high standard when you're training. And then when they're not there, they have no standards whatsoever you're not going to see a change in lean body mass or body composition, at least to the degree that you want. So when we're looking at this, we're playing, we're playing large samples here, right? There's anomalies. There's always exceptions to the rules that don't have to make any dietary or lifestyle changes are going to respond well. That's not the majority. The majority of us mortals are walking around saying, I need to work really hard when I train and I need to prioritize my recovery and my health when I'm not training. And that's where we should see these changes, right? If we're looking at that bell curve distribution, 80% of the people are going to fall within this kind of like moderate response to training and have to have a little bit more conscientious approach to their diet, health, and habits and nutrition. Well, okay, well, if we're really good at our job, we're going to have a positive influence overall in everything that we do. And we should see that manifest at the, in terms of this body compositional change in terms of lean muscle mass gain and body fat loss. Right. So we have the overall health of your strength and conditioning program. I thought that was really good. It's the, it's the blood pressure of your strength and conditioning program. But we also have that adherence type you know, metric, like how good are you outside of the weight room? How good are we at conveying the, the importance of sleep, gram per pound of protein, all that fun stuff? So uh, clearly, body comp is important. What is the preferred method of body comp testing? How are you doing it? How, how have you done it? What's the research say? So we have on this, we have a continuum, right? And the continuum is based off of validity, reliability, and then cost and time, right? So if you look at those big four things that we need to consider with body comp, you have on this one end of the spectrum, like a DEXA scan, which is going to be 
no matter what valid, right? It's going to have the, probably the best overall assessment, but it takes a little bit more time. And there's a lot of potential that you shouldn't be doing it that often from radiation. So reliability might be impacted as well as the other end. You go into this it's super expensive. It's a very, very high cost way to test body fat. It wasn't intended for that. We've just been fortunate enough as an industry to be able to use that from time to time. On the way other end of the spectrum, we can go as low as body mass index, looking at height to weight, height to weight ratio. We can look at circumference. We can look at those things and say, okay, that's, that is a probably less valid, but if we're doing it consistently, like daily and weekly, maybe more reliable, you know? And then we look at that from the context of it's super cheap and everyone more readily understands it just happens to be very unreliable. And then we have these things in the middle, right? Like we can look at bod pod, hydrostatic weighing. We can look at skin caliper, ultrasound, and then biological impedance. And everything kind of falls into this now decision-making tree of, all right, well, do I have a lot of resources? Can I, do I have a lot of money at disposal? Can I pay for a bod pod? Maybe or maybe not. Can I afford bioelectrical impedance? And I'm just going to do it at such a frequency, like every day, that we're going to test this in such a level that it's always cranking. And then maybe you can get to this more reliability conversation of it's taking away the human component whatsoever altogether. All I would argue bod pod maybe is not the most reliable thing in the world. I can test you one time and the next time it's different. So that's an issue. And then we have kind of in the middle of like this valid, reliable cost, and then really time component with caliper and ultrasound. I've defaulted to ultrasound because I find that the inner rater reliability from me to you, from test to test, is going to be a lot higher. And the other element of that is I get, I don't get these just big global metrics like overall body comp, you know, overall lean muscle mass, overall fat mass. I get I get a better indicator of where I'm storing that fat. And the thing that I think is so important to note here, and I've been on my, my pedestal talking about regional fat distribution is an important metric we should be tracking. A lot of people say it's a loose science. I disagree. I look at a lot of cancer research, a lot of cardiovascular research, a lot of metabolic syndrome research. Is The, right, the step that initiates all that is your, where you're storing body fat. Mm -hmm. If I'm more of an Android type, more of a gynoid type, that's going to be this process starting. Like, okay, this person's an Android type. They're going to be at risk for cardiovascular. They're going to be at risk for metabolic. And that is all body fat distribution. So if the medical field is saying, okay, you store more body fat in your torso, that is going to be a leading indicator to potentially being at risk for metabolic syndrome, i.e. glucose problems, insulin problems, body fat problems. If you're going to be at more at risk for cardiovascular health, i.e. heart, vascular system, overall just function from a respiratory function, okay, well, that's good enough for me to say, like, yeah, body fat and where we store it is really important. And there are evidence to show that if I store my body fat around my umbilical, I, I am a high stress, and that could be associated with cortisol or epinephrine, norepinephrine. If I store more in my upper back, you can get into the brown fat, white fat. There's a lot of, like, discrepancy in research and we are we are mammals and we're going to have a difference between the two but we are an outdoor mammals we can't survive in temperatures below a certain degrees at a for extended period of time so brown fat has been evolutionary wise 
decreased and not really kept. So we are going to be predominantly white fat and we're not going to have the genetic makeup to change into brown fat. So exposure to cold is not really going to change that distribution. But I would say if we're storing a lot of body fat in our upper back around our waist, there's going to be some sort of, well, why are we storing excess energy in that area? We're going to be in a surplus and we've lost glucose and insulin control. Mm -hmm. And that is a evolutionary response to, okay, we are storing a lot of body fat and always we need to create a cushion for our visceral organs. We need to create insulation to prepare for the cold. Well, we're going to store, we're going to store a lot of fat. And in one of the, it's actually a really good by John Durant talked about one of the things that's a pretty interesting way to look at this in terms of body fat storage is bears when they go or any hibernating animal will increase their body mass and increase their fat mass in preparation to hibernate throughout the winter. And they do that by being in a surplus and eating a lot of calorie rich foods and eating a lot more sugar. So they'll, they'll start to look for more honey, more fruit in that later part of the summer, early fall, all the way through till the winter. And as humans, you know, the, his, his, that was his defense of why we need to expose ourselves to cold, why we need to expose ourselves to intermittent fasting, why we need to sleep more as a means to losing body mass. But we start to think about all mammals, pretty much all species will have these like feedback loops from things that we're doing repeatedly. And we'll start to see that aggregate into, I am going to store more body fat as well as I'm going to store more body fat in certain parts, depending on either a more androgen type or more of a gynoid type. Or on the other end of, I have these very, very similar and redundant things that I'm doing, either eating a high carb or a low protein, a high fat, and I'm starting to distribute body fat in a certain area more predominantly, you can start to see that. If you get into all the sites and get a little bit weird with it, yes, there could be some open for interpretation, but I've yet to see a male that's strength training three to four days a week have a lot of body fat in their pec, in their tricep. I've seen a lot of males who don't strength train have a lot of body fat here and here. And you could say, okay, that maybe is a loose correlation to androgen production, but I would argue probably it's an indicator of you should just strength train more, right? Like that's a pretty simple inference of, okay, well, you don't do any strength training. So great place to start. And we can use this as a proxy to see the impact from that. And then you can look at it from aromatase pathways and storing more body fat in the lower body as a male, not good. So I would look at it from, okay, well, yeah, we have, and back to the original question, sorry, there's a, a ramble and a rant that may be not necessary in that moment, but I'm going to stick with it. We can look at DEXA, we can look at BMI and circumference, and then we can look in this middle, and then we can look at this kind of rating of, okay, is it really reliable? Can I do it at a high frequency, like bioelectrical impedance, but very invalid, very cheap? depending on which one you're going with. If I'm looking at it from a bod pod, could be reliable, maybe, if you do it adaptation that, and it's also really expensive, and it takes a long time. And then we look in the middle. We look at this skin caliper ultrasound, and I would say ultrasound is going to be really reliable, very valid, a little bit more moderately priced. And then we look at caliper, cheaper, but it's going to have a lower iterator reliability, it's going to have a potentially less validity if we look at it from person to person, a lot of just difference and deviation. But then we can get into this, I'm storing body fat in certain areas and I can dive a little bit deeper and I can change stuff. Like something as simple as, all right, well, if we're strength training, we should see a change in certain areas. 
if mm-hmm. we're decreasing carbohydrates or if we're managing stress better, we should see changes in certain areas. So I've always defaulted to regional distribution, whether it's caliper. And then now as I expanded my practice to have multiple people, like now upwards to like 50 to 100 people implementing my systems, I've relied on ultrasound as a mechanism to keep the reliability high while still seeing body fat distribution. Right. So, I mean, in, in essence, as we break it down, like you got to, for your situation, you got to look at the cost or reliability validity. You got to, you got to look at that continuum yourself and then make that decision. And then the big thing is hammer that reliability. Like our, our test parameters are always the same. We're always doing it at this time under these situations. So all that being said, like how often should we be doing it? Yeah. The, the timeline and how much you want something is going to determine the frequency, right? So I'm going to give a couple scenarios here and anyone who's a college strength coach is listening to this can probably can relate to it. Coach walks down, I want this person to gain 30 pounds this off season. Mm-hmm. Coach walks down, I want this person to lose 30 pounds this off season. Well, if you're gonna say I got eight weeks to gain 30 or lose 30, one, it's really unhealthy. Two, it's very impossible. And three, like how much is that gonna impact the other performance aspects of running faster, jumping higher and throwing something further, right? The things that we're gonna use as a, as a relative proxy to see the value of them being prepared for sport. With that situation though, it's going to come down to slow incremental changes. So if I want to lose 30 pounds, how do I get this like one to two pound a week loss? I'm not going to get 30 pounds for that matter. I'm just going to start to make neck closer. And it's all about like shooting for the stars and hitting the moon. And I'm looking at this over a couple of years. And that's where you as a strength coach need to come in and start to put temperance and put this, we're going to get there. I'm not, not being dismissive. I'm not going to say we're not going to do it, but what I'll say is we're going to do it in the time that's necessary to help this person perform at a high level and keep them safe. Mm-hmm. But in the other note, it gets into, well, if I do want to initiate behavior change now, and I want them to take this seriously because it's like, hey, this isn't a, we'll just cram for the test in, in end of July and hopefully we can get closer to that weight loss goal. I'm going to start to create behavior change by more testing frequency. You know, that what gets measured gets managed, that whole idea of if we're going to test it means it's more meaningful to something that we need to make more changes. And we can get into this, hey, if it's a a moderate goal, yeah, maybe once a week is adequate. If it's something that's really serious and something that's, hey, this person's either going to get cut from the team or they're going to get in the NFL or some other high performance league where they're paid to play, like lose their actual compensation, I'm going to test a lot more frequency, like twice a week. And the idea is like, I want to know if something's a problem way faster, right? I'm going to make these more macro changes in a smaller time scale. I need to know what the actual relative impact is in that, right? So if we look at it, we drop their calories by five to 10% each week. If we look at it, we drop, we adjusted their macronutrients by 25 to 50%. There's going to be substantial changes. And we start to think about, okay, well, I'm going to start to assess body composition in as a way to go, okay, we got to toggle some stuff either more or less. And then we start to look at it from this point of their behavior and their willingness to comply, right? The, the biggest limiting factor to any dietary or nutritional intervention is going to be compliance and consistency. And if we have no triggers or mechanism to say, Hey, you need to do a better job in between sessions, or you need to do a better job overall, 
they're not going to take it seriously. And then it gets into this like moderate goal to, I kind of want it. And I, I, I live in that world now. I, I live in a lot in that world. kind of want to lose weight, but I'm not willing to make any really big changes, right? I'm not going to count my calories. I'm not going to adjust my macros. I may be willing to give up alcohol two or three nights a week. I may be willing to give up some uh, sweets every once in a while. I may be able to get in three to four times a week for training. Then we can start to say, okay, well, the frequency of that is going to be a lot less, right? Because it's going to take a lot longer to manifest and actually body compositional changes. But I would argue that you need to start to get really comfortable with not seeing a lot of changes over time because the willingness to change isn't there. So you need to start slowly chipping away with diet, lifestyle, and habits. And you say, okay, like this week's goal is all about sleep. Can you give me an extra 15 minutes a night till we get to the end of the week and you get an extra two hours of sleep, relatively speaking, than we started? Hey, can we get more water in? Can you walk around with a water bottle? Like these small things that we know are going to aggregate into a bigger thing over time but you're not going to see these changes on a, even a monthly scale. Right. And then people struggle with that. Like, Oh, I actually lost, I actually gained weight. Like we didn't adjust your calories or macronutrients whatsoever. Like we made zero changes to the things functioning that we haven't, inter we haven't used a intervention of adding in more cardiovascular exercise or more work into the actual training program. All we did was just start to make these micro changes that are unnoticeable to the naked eye. That's not going to see a whole lot of body composition or body mass changes. And then you need to go, okay, well, it's all chop wood, carry water. Just keep moving forward, right? The, the, you didn't express a strong desire to change until after you saw the lack of change. Are you willing to now go a little bit more and start to adjust some more things? And if that kickstarts, hey, I want to go every week. I want to go twice a week. Okay, you lean in that direction. Sometimes people need that change. But I would come back and say, there's the element in the private sector that, okay, you're going to be held to the standard that you need to help people lose weight, lose body fat. You might not get that serious response early because it's trying to absorb and take in a lot of things at once. And then it becomes an issue when they don't do it the rate they want. In the athletic setting, it's going to get into this conversation of what is the tester to athlete ratio? So you got to do 100 people every day. That's not going to happen. Right. Maybe you can chip away at it. Like I'm going to take A through D and on week one of the week one of the month, and then I can get through E through M on week two or week two, and then just keep plowing through the alphabet like that. Maybe you start to go, okay, like I'm going to start to get these small samples that are higher needs, like our starters or our top reserves. Or maybe I'm going through a development squad situation in season where we're doing a lot more strength training, and I want to see the impact from that and give meaningful information to our, our coaches that these guys are working really hard and they're, they're getting in here on a daily basis and really, really trying to make themselves a better player and having that confidence that, okay, those guys are in a complete afterthought, keeps them in the conversation. There's all these like var variables to associate with that. But I would say the, the seriousness of the goal and the amount of people you got to test really dictates the frequency. And then you start to evaluate, okay, well, how serious is this and how much do I need to account for? And I got to start to create an appropriate, sustainable frequency of testing that I can manage over a longer period of time. Right. So essentially the testing battery is saying, this is important. You better figure it out. Or this is not as important to you until it becomes more important. Like you get those bad results a month down the line. They're like, hey, what's going on here? Like, yeah, we haven't talked calories and anything. You just, we've been just been trying to sleep more. And they're right. like, oh, okay, so what do I need to do? So that that builds that momentum for them. And obviously yeah. we can get a lot of information from body mass testing. We've talked about adherence, the strength or the health of your program. Then you get into the regional uh, storage conversation. So 
So can we, we can get a lot. Can we get enough from body mass testing? So I would say this is the association bias with body mass over body comp, that it's going to be more of a recognizable number for most people. The sport world, general pop, doesn't matter. They're going to associate body mass with, with overall like value of what they're doing. And a lot of times when we look at body mass, we'll look at it as a proxy in certain parts of the year way more. So preseason, we'll look at pre and post practice as a mechanism. We'll look at fluid loss during practice. We'll look at it as like a annual goal, right? I want that person to gain 30 pounds or lose 30 pounds, like we talked about already. And then we look at it from the general population of like, they associate their body mass with the best point of their life and how they look and felt, right? They're not going to remember their body comp more times than not. They're not going to go, oh man, when I was in my 20s, I was 8% body fat. I want to get back to that. They're going to say I was 190 and my jeans fit well and I felt really confident. So there's always going to be this number that we look at body mass as like, it's, it's going to be the, it's going to be that translatable like metric that people will really associate it with. And when we start to look at body mass, yes, that might be the number that your clients and athletes are hanging up on. Your coaches are really hanging up on. It might be the way like that's that's our kind of like crossover here. That's where we start to create a common language. And we start to look at the other end of the spectrum of where that body mass changed. And if that body mass changed by decreasing fat and muscle mass, okay, well, you might see some issues with their performance. You know, we might see some issues with the way they're they're feeling, right? Their absolute function. If we start to see a increase in body mass and a lot of that coming from muscle mass and you go, okay, well, I'm just going to say here before we get going on breaking this down, you increase the more functional mass and we actually may potentially decrease the fat mass. And then you start to say, I know you gained weight and I know that's not what you wanted, but you know, chances are you're probably looking and feeling better and mm -hmm. you're probably now are seeing the direct value of doing a really high quality program. So you might need to get out in front of that because they might walk in like it's going to be a tough conversation. They gained five pounds, but they actually lost 3% body fat and gained seven pounds of muscle mass. And that gets into this like, all right, well, body mass is important. And it's kind of the, it's the basis for what you're doing. And I start to look at, when I look at body mass and body comp and we look at all the things that we're trying to do, like they all have some sort of impact and meaning. But on the other end, you get into this like, all right, well, if body mass is still going to be something that people care about, you need to at least have an empathy and you need to have appreciation of, okay, that that's what they want. And you need to kind of get into that. Okay. Well, how is that, how are we going to change that for them in a positive way and understanding that you're still relatively judged on maybe not directly, but indirectly off of their muscle mass versus fat mass. Right. So basically mass doesn't kick ass. Functional mass kicks ass. And if you're not, measuring body comp or body mass you should be yeah absolutely and i, I mean it's a great segue into the story that your your time in army right the the pretense was just get them bigger right that's it right until that wasn't good enough right when we got them bigger but it was still a four and eight and two and ten season you know mm -hmm. that that bigger was better until better wasn't we weren't better you know right. and then we start to have a conversation about like well body mass at a certain point is going to be important. And then you get to this other level of when body mass is equal and you have one person that has less functional mass, then that person with less functional mass is going to be at a disadvantage. And yep. that's when you start to look at it from, and I remember the conversation off of like coming off of 
beast barracks of like what we need to do with these athletes. Do we just need to get a ton of calories in them? Or do we need to find a way to get calories and then make a strength program that's going to facilitate muscle mass? Mm -hmm. We talked about coming off of step one, which for the folks that don't know about, you know, military academies is they have to go to military training in the summer. And we were fortunate enough to have a summer training program. And it, it was six and a half weeks, which is less than most of our counterparts. But how do we compensate and overcome whatever military training that we're doing? And the reason why we had six weeks of off-season training in the summer is because at West Point, they consolidated down like an eight-week program and down to three. Mm -hmm. And you don't, don't, don't get it twisted. They were going to get theirs. They were going to get their in-the-field training, and they were going to do their real stuff they do with the military, just condensed down into a three-week period. So we're going to take eight weeks and smash it into three. And you see guys with significant weight loss during that period. Yep. Interior linemen losing a ton of weight that worked their absolute tails off to get that weight on from pretty much September to April. All meet this basically violent thing called step one and lose all that weight. You know, there's a whole bunch of orthopedic stuff from wearing a rucksack and walking in combat boots, et cetera, being sleep deprived, crushing their parasympathetic or their sympathetic nervous system, all these things. And they, okay, well, I can just shove their face full of food and be at a, a surplus of five to 20%. Or I can start to look at it from, can we increase their calories and focus more on protein? Mm -hmm. Can we increase their calorie or their nutrients at certain times around their workouts? Can we increase our number of workouts to increase their calories and make whatever it is that those calories are doing, hopefully leading into net protein gain into this, into this more functional mass. And then from a strength and conditioning perspective, Right. We look at inside and outside the box and here's a plug for strength deficit. And we talk about decreasing the deficit and we look at increasing concentric output and cross-sectional muscle area being probably the most important thing of why we want to do that. We start to layer, we start to build our program around that. And we start to look at maybe a high low model around how do we build more muscle tissue? We start to look at a AM PM workout schedule of how do we build more muscle tissue? And then we start to look at that relatively speaking to their outside the box counterparts who just need to be more efficient. Body mass isn't as important. Mm -hmm. We're not as preoccupied with doing more tension and time under tension things. We're not as preoccupied with things that are going to build muscle mass. We want those guys in great physical shape as well as moving really well and being strong enough. And then looking at interior alignment saying, we got to make up for all the past three weeks of not being able to strength train, being in a deficit, being sleep deprived, crushing the nervous system, time to go to work. And we're going to build our entire pretty much for month around getting their muscle mass back up to what they were, as well as maybe potentially hopefully hitting this like maybe glycogen super compensation to increase muscle mass to what we did. And we did that every off season. Mm -hmm. Every time we had a June period with our athletes, our interior linemen, we were able to supersede whatever we were in April. And I attest that to testing. Like I really do. If we weren't testing that stuff, we probably would not really be as out aware of it and know that it wasn't, it was such a big limiting factor. Absolutely. And, and I find so many college education programs just use it as an afterthought. I'm like, yeah, it's just whatever. It's body comp. But, well, it's going to shape and form your training program. I remember the first time I put on an actual workout card, bicep curls and tricep pushdowns. Just, you want to do it? Have at it was the conversation. But now we look at it from, I got to increase tension in a period of time. I can't keep hammering these compound multi-joint movements. We're going to do an upper lower split. So when I get to this push-pull, push-pull antagonist from the A and B series, probably would benefit us to do a little bit of work in the upper arm. 
Mm-hmm. So we're going to do a little bit C-series here and we're going to program in bicep curls and some sort of pushdowns. And then we get into this conversation of like muscle mass wins here. Muscle mass wins here. I'm just trying to increase a positive protein turnover and I'm going to try to get whatever muscle mass I can in the right areas. And if the other part, which is always the funnest part, it is so deflating to see a athlete that busted their ass from January all the way to April lose it all and then get back in the weight room and put on their t-shirt and feel like they're swimming in it. Right. So from a confidence perspective, you know, the most readily seen things, and this is the other thing about biosig, you know, I won't hammer this too much, but the first change you see is your chin and your cheek. And that's why you do that first in the biosig. Mm-hmm. I don't think it has any significance to anything other than that, but it goes in this association of like, I want to lose weight. And I start to see it and feel that there you're on the right track. If I want to build muscle, if I genuinely want to build muscle, the lowest hanging fruit is probably there. From yeah. a, 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 a appearance of I'm gaining muscle, right? Mm-hmm. I could be testing your body comp and I'm improving lean muscle mass by a half a pound a week. You probably won't even notice it. But if I'm increasing, if this feels tighter around my, around my shirt sleeve, this is working. It's the association with you doing the right things to help you get more prepared. It's passing the eye test. It wasn't a bad thing. And it was like, for me, I had to get over that internal, like I'm a high performance coach. That stuff is for them. They want to do it. I'm not going to stop them. But then I started to look at it holistically Evolve lean muscle mass is going to be the biggest limiting factor or constraint to us performing at a high level. And I can only do so many compound multi-joint movements in a training session. Maybe I need to start doing an isolation movement, like a bicep and, bar, a bicep and tricep. And then full circle, looking at the lower leg as well. It's like, hey, doing more calf raises and tip raises. Like it's the same conversation to me. It's an isolation exercise that has very little big meaning until it does. And then you start to look at body composition, you start to look at gait, you start to look at all these like small things that you can break down the efficacy and value of your program. And you go, yeah, I got to do some more tape raises. I got to do some more seated calf raises. I got to do more barbell curls. I got to do more grip. I got to do things that on paper aren't going to move the needle in terms of running fasting, jumping higher and throwing something further. But it's still going to have a big impact coming off periods of detraining, coming off periods of rehabilitation, leading into the bigger overall end goal of performing at a higher level. Right. And there's also that buy-in conversation too. Like, like I came in, I was swimming in my shirt and you took like two or three weeks, my shirt's feeling tired. Like, Oh, all right. T-Bone's got us. He's going to take care of us. And then, I, then I'm in, I'm on the program, hundred percent set integrity, rep integrity, whole thing. It's, it's going through the roof. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's the secret sauce, man. If I could tell anybody what the magic in a bottle was, was understanding the assignment and having like complete blinders on to that. And when you talk to any athlete, when you have a plan and you know that plan is going to work, they believe in you, man. They do. And you listen to them. Like, I remember having these conversations swimming and diving at USC. We had it all the time. Walking on the pool deck, they felt small and not nearly as imposing as some of their counterparts between like Stanford, Cal, Arizona. That had an intimidating effect. And there's a recruiting aspect to it too, but I'm like, all right, well, you want to do some extra pec flies? You want to do some extra upper back work? You want to do some buys and tries? So you have more confidence out there knowing that it's not going to have a meaningful impact on anything performance-wise. But when they're walking the deck and they're going, okay, like I feel more confident. I guess this guy has kicked my ass the past three years because I've physically changed my body. Is that a bad thing? You know, yeah, I want to spend majority of my time focusing on what's going to get better times and making them more efficient so they can practice at a higher level. But on the other end, if 
if you don't feel confident walking a pool deck, then yeah, I'm going to help you in that direction because I have ability to do that. And that's performance. Yeah. I like to call it their dessert. Like, hey, hey, do your meat and potatoes with this B series. Then we get to the C series and then you get your dessert. Just make sure we get that meat and potatoes first. And veggies, veggies, yeah. Veggies. Well, yeah, don't, veggies, don't, of course. Yeah, yeah. Six, six to eight fists, right? That's it, man. Ha, ha. <laughs> Dude. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate you cranking on me on that one, man. Corey, you didn't, you didn't shy away from the tough, tough questions there. Hey, that's, we got to give the people what they want and they want to, they want to yeah, hear that. Out. I was in the hot seat, man. I'm a standing desk guy. So technically not a hot seat. Yeah, the hot floor is lava. It is, man. So we got Will next. Yeah. Body, body comp champion. If for those yeah. that don't. Yeah, Will's the, Will's going to be the resident shredded guy on staff. Although I would, rec- I would, argue to say that coach Eric Schmidt is, is matching him pretty good for body comp. So, mm-hmm. so, I mean, we'll see. I mean, Will's got two kids now, so that's even more impressive. Yeah. We all know how it is. I feel like kids are the enemy of body comp in my opinion. You know, if you don't they, have they kids. change your life. Yeah. They change your life. They make you more enriched and more whole, but definitely not helping your body fat percentage. Definitely. Especially when they're young. Yeah. It's like, they almost don't want you to be shredded, you know? You don't want me to last for, you know, 60 more years so I can be with you when you're an adult? Yeah, no doubt. Unreal. No doubt. Like you're holding in like this set point that's so hard to break, but whatever. Yeah. They don't care. It's fine, whatever. They never do. Yeah, it's a, it is. All right, buddy. All right, I appreciate it. Yeah, man. All right, see ya. All right, well, so we have body composition on the docket today. We're talking about what can we do. I want to open up with what test do you do with your athletes body composition wise and why? Well, we're lucky to have a DEXA scan available to us. The hard part about a DEXA scan in the state of New York is that you require a radiologist to, to implement the test. So the logistical part of that is a little bit more difficult. We also have a bod pod. We have a couple bod pods that we've used in the past and we've used calipers. Those are the three ways in which we do that. But I think the most important context to that is that whatever body fat or body composition method that you're using, it has to remain consistent to get the most validity out of what you, and reliability out of what you're doing. If you're going from a DEXA scan at a certain percent and then going to a, a bod pod six weeks, eight weeks later, you're talking about two different things. And, you know, that's, that's one caveat of, of body composition is that it's not as objective as we'd like because if a different system or a different way of method of doing it is going to give you a different result, you know, what is the actual objective number that we're looking at? So it's all relative to the machine or the method that you're using. So the majority of what we've been doing over the last year or so, since we have availability is using the DEXA scan. And I think that gives us a little bit more accuracy in terms of where the body fat is stored, which I think is very cool and really has to do in terms of an athletic population, especially with return to play of where is the muscle mass sitting? I don't know if we've got to the point of predictive methods. I know there are some companies trying to do predictive methods of where does the body mass sit? How big is their frame? What can they hold? Is there a way to, is there a need to reshape but I think those are the cool things that people are looking at that in the future we'll be able to see and use for, for body competition. Yeah. So you, you mentioned it, reliability, validity, and I would actually throw in there cost and time. Mm-hmm. Of those four, and I, I guess it's not a perfect continuum here, 
which one of those are more important to you? Is it reliability or validity or is it cost and time? I think it's all important. You know, cost and time, time is especially important that what you're going to have access to is what you're going to have access to. If, if all we could do was calipers or bilateral impedance, then I'd be fine using those as long as you can continue to use that same method. The validity and reliability, I, I think everything in the sports science realm, which we're using science to inform sport, there's always going to be some nuance to that because it's very hard to control the setting. It's very hard to keep everything controlled. We do our best. So I think you're always going to have to deal with some lack of reliability in the test. But knowing, going, knowing that going in, you can do your best to try to limit all those factors. So I guess the follow-up to that is in your setting, working with a large group of mm -hmm. 55 to 65 guys, maybe some staff as well, I'm sure is thrown in there. You know, in, in terms of the reliability aspect, you know, what tool allows you to have the most reliability with multiple people testing? Can you elaborate on what is, is you mean a specific technology? Or? Well, barring the DEXA scan, let's say that you have multiple people doing the bod pod, mm. taking athletes, multiple people taking the bod pod, most people, multiple people taking through bioelectro impedance or, or a skin caliper. You know, what tool of those? I mean, obviously you need a radiologist on hand to mm -hmm. do the DEXA, so that kind of standardizes that. But mm -hmm. of those tools, because this is a large group problem, it's, yeah. You know, in order to get through that many people, you need multiple people testing. You know, what tool have you found is allowing for a higher inter-rater reliability between mm. you and the rest of yourself? Well, I think calipers would be the hardest one to do. You'd have to have someone very experienced and that only that person could do the test and the follow-up test and, and beyond. The, the bod pod is pretty straightforward because you're just plugging in the person's weight, your calibrating the system you're using the same system every single time so that technology allows it to be a little bit cleaner and you can have more trust that it's similar every single time so i think user error is a big issue when it comes to body fat percentage or body composition testing with calipers but obviously the more experience you have the better you can be at it mm. Now, I guess, I guess a follow-up question on that too is, you know, this is something you're in a situation where that information needs to be wild, wildly disseminated. The transfer of something like a body composition analysis from a bod pod, I'm assuming is going to be manual to a athlete management system. Does that sound, is that accurate? What do you mean manual? The... Are you like manually up, like typing in what you found from the bod pod or does it have some sort of API linkage to your athlete management system? Oh, no. Yeah. Everything is going to be manual input. It gives you a, a, I don't think, I don't know if that technology is too old or it just doesn't speak to yeah. new technology. So you're usually inputting that, but a lot of, while it's it, the tracking piece and the dissemination of that information to different people is important. I think the conversation that comes from the printout or what's on the screen after is really the important piece for mm. making change with the athlete, because that's where the conversation happens around. But what does that number mean? What does that look like? And that discussion for what actions can be taken to 
improve or maintain or whatever it is about the body composition results that you get. That's interesting. So, well, I guess the other part of that would be when we start talking about large samples and we start talking about these big data sets, the, I think the biggest kind of like chink in the armor of looking at a big data set is the manual entry piece. And I probably organically, you just said, well, more matters in the moment, right? That, that direct interface to get out in front with that person and show what they've been doing well or what they haven't been doing well Mm -hmm. takes precedent. And, you know, you look at it from the other end of big data is coming, big data is here, big data is a part of everyone's life. And it's still an interesting phenomenon of like, we have these really important metrics like a jump or a, or training log or something like body composition. And a lot of it's contingent upon manual entry. Mm -hmm. And I think what I hear a lot now and what I think about a lot too in this setting is that moment of getting the number still has the most weight in terms of influencing your environment. And I don't know if it's just a natural reservation to say like, ah, eventually it's going to get manually inputted and there's going to be some sort of human error component of this. And that number has a little bit less power influence. Maybe not. Maybe that's just an overstatement of that. But I guess that goes into the next question I really had is aside from the, the athlete management software and what we're trying to look at from big data or whatever, is how are you taking that number? Let's say, and I could get specific quick numbers and we can do a little rapid fire if you like, but how are you taking that body composition number from, hey, this is their body fat percentage, this is their lean muscle mass, this is their fat mass, comparatively speaking to their total body mass, and shaping that into some sort of intervention, whether it's nutritional or supplementation? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think the context is what time of the year is it and who the person is and where they are in their career. You know, you could have someone in season and say their body fat is 10% and their performance is good. There's, it seems to be no effect on whether or not, um, you know, they're, they're slower or there's a lack of performance on their end just because of their weight. And that person is a motivated person. Is like, you know, I, I just really want to get to 7%. Fine goal, except for the fact that the amount of effort and energy that would take to get from 10% to 7% at a time like in season, where most of your physical and emotional resources need to be on improving your sport or maintaining the skill of your sport, it would be irresponsible for me to give them interventions to change their body composition at that time. So depending on the time of the year is really the most important thing of, okay, is it off season? Is it in season? Where are we? Why are we trying to change that body fat percentage? Is It's the idea of maximizing versus satisficing where is where you are satisfactory to what your performance is going to be? Well, then we don't really have to change much. On the other hand, is it something where we can really dive into and maximize that adaptation? That would be something different. And that might be in the, the off season. That might be someone coming off an injury who, who has lost some muscle mass or put on a little bit too much fat mass coming into the off season because they've, they've you know, enjoyed their vacation on their downtime, rightfully so. Those are the times to maximize. 
and then the times of satisfice, there's really just not the the effort and energy putting into improving that. Instead, it's just keeping it right there. And that just might be through the routine or making sure that they're they're getting adequate stimulus in the weight room. So <clears throat> I think the biggest thing is whatever that number shows, the context needs to be, well, do we, do we need to improve it? Do we need to improve it now? And what is the amount of resources it's going to take to do either one of those? Mm. I guess, so let's get specific on it then. Let's create some context here. Off season, let's say it's an interior lineman, someone that needs to be a high body mass. They come in at an exceptionally high body fat percentage of 25 to 30%. You have the beginning of your off season. So let's say it's February, March. What are you doing in that moment? Are you thinking, hey, I'm going to start to really hammer diet and nutrition. I'm going to start to hammer training and cardiovascular. I might start to hammer supplementation. Or is it going to be a combination of all of that? The thing I'm going to hammer first is what's up? What's going on? You know, the conversation with the person to say, so you probably know a lot more about nutrition and exercise, especially at this level, than you even realize. Where do you think it is where you really mess up the most? And sometimes asking that question throws people off guard. It, it kind of opens them up to like, oh, well, I, I guess it's this, this, and this. Sometimes it takes a little bit more prodding and poking to say, well, what does a normal day look like? And most of those times will shape, you know, an athlete will shape what maybe they think I want to hear. And that's my job to keep poking and prodding and say, what is... What it, where is the problem here? Because, you know, you were 23% when you left, you're 30% now. Something went different. And then finding out, well, what are the capabilities of this person? Are, are they someone who's going to be dialed in all the time? It, do they have kids? Do they really enjoy this type of food? What type of culture are they from? What are the foods that are normal there? What are the foods that are abnormal that would be difficult for them to eat? And so you're kind of doing a forensic analysis of, okay, what happened? What can we do? And where, we, where can we go successfully from here? Because the information is really not the thing that's going to make the change. I need to make sure that, that whatever I'm going to be doing with that athlete is going to emotionally resonate with them and it's going to matter to them. And I'm going to be with them along on their journey. So it would be easy enough for me to come on here and just say, well, you know what I do? I, I plan out six meals each, you know, uh, 600, 800 calories per meal. Um, you know, here's, here's the formula in which you need to do this. You're going to get this test and we're going to do this, but generally that doesn't work. And I think that doesn't work because it takes a very disciplined type of person to stick to that. And usually the disciplined person is not going from 23% to 30% in the off season. So you're kind of attacking the wrong population generally. And let's just use this, this example. So really what I'm, what I'm trying to do is understand the person, why they are in the situation that they are, and what wins we can get really easily, and then build from that. I think the last time we talked, we, I talked about consuming a lot of water. A lot of times that's where I start. Hey, how much water can we consume realistically? Do you need a water bottle? Should I buy you a 100-ounce water bottle? Do we need to fill it up twice? Hey, what kind of water do you like? Do we need to get water bottles of those? Whatever, whatever I can do to help make the process easier make it unsticky, which is kind of ironic about having them drink water, is how do, you know, how do I make this flow? 
I don't even I don't even know if setting a goal of what percentage I want to get to is even appropriate at that time. It's just, hey, can we can we start this thing off and, and get the ball rolling? And I think as you start rolling it downhill, a lot of things start going right. You can start putting goals a little bit further away and say, hey, now we have the, the way to get here. Um, so I, I'd say that's where I would start uh, with that person in February, March, knowing that the end goal is really far away. You know, the end goal is really September all the way into the next January or February. And that's really far away and it's hard to do for a really long time. So make it enjoyable for the person, make it resonate emotionally with them and, and go from there and see where it takes you. It's a very interesting thought that you just talked a lot about the emotional, the psychology, the spiritual relationship with food. Mm -hmm. And body composition is a very objective, quantifiable number. Mm -hmm. Do you ever find that your athletes or your clients are perplexed when you have such a like a different lane? So you have a hard number of your 30% body fat, you are 330 pounds, and you're running around with 66 pounds of or 99 pounds of body fat that you give this very like ethereal, like, hey, this is going to be like a slow drawn out process. I just want to get to know you. I want to know what makes you tick. I want to make you work. Like, do you ever get this like almost perplexed look of, I thought we were going to talk about numbers. Are they going to start spitting out numbers? Cause we just tested through numbers. Do you find there's almost like a, a disconnect between those two? Uh, I think it's the opposite. I would say the majority of people that I've worked with have heard the numbers before. Mm. I don't think anyone is coming them coming at an angle of, hey, I'm not I'm not writing you down in my book as Johnny Smith, thirty percent body fat football player. I'm saying, hey, Johnny, I'd love to have a conversation about who you are and what you enjoy and and how you go about things. And I'd like to make this fit for you so that in a little bit you won't have as much body fat on you. And I think that will really help you out. And I think you'll enjoy the experience of this a lot better rather than looking at someone as a, as a number, as a robot that's supposed to eat like, you know, meal number one, number two, number three, here's your feedings. Um, but it's more like, oh man, I, I see that you come from this culture of food and eating. Tell me about that. I'd love to try. I'd love to experience that with you. Can we go to a restaurant and, and try that food out? I want to, I want to know what you're experiencing and, and smelling and tasting and sensing. And have then you ever I got burnt by that, by the way. Have you ever gone to experience like that? That you absolutely like is the worst food I've ever eaten in my life. Do you have a very refined no. palate yourself? No, I'll pretty much eat anything except except broccoli rob. I don't know why. I just don't mm. like it. Oh, I love broccoli um, rob. So, is there a culture out there that focuses on broccoli rob? Uh, Italian? I hope not. I think they do. For my yeah. Sake. yeah. For my sake. I got broccoli rob at an Italian restaurant. It wasn't very good, to be honest. I usually like it. It was like overcooked. Yeah, you know, saturated in olive oil. It's like a very like bitter aftertaste. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. this is this oil's rancid. Remember, if it's solid at room temperature, it's safe to cook with. Yeah, so I, I well, hopefully for me, the broccoli rob is is doesn't come across my plate in those in oh. those times. But I do know that I I want to be able to experience things with people, and I think that gets me a lot further in the conversation on how to change body composition because eating is a very a very personal thing everyone's done it their whole life they have their own experiences they have their own palates they have their own taste they have their own ways of doing it textures they like smells all those things 
and their way of doing it is the right way for them. Mm. So to tell them that they're wrong in the 25 years that they've been doing it, you know, you're already on, it's already an uphill climb. So you might as well just go to the mountain with them and say, Hey, let's, let's ride it down the mountain. Let's see what it's like. And yeah. it might take a little bit longer. It might take a little bit more, you know, social skills or kind of reading the room and figuring out where they're at. And maybe you don't make change with them immediately, but I think it's much more appreciated. And I think the experience is a lot better for both parties. Do you find though, like potentially in that situation and matching cultural and personal with, you know, objective things, Mm -hmm. obviously you're not gonna be able to toggle certain levers as easily with a very like hyper-motivated, like aesthetic driven person, like a bodybuilder. Yeah. Right? You tell them how many calories and macros to eat. Yeah. Are you looking at it from, Hey, I can, I can control some stuff here. I can control energy balance by limiting their portion size. Is that like an, a thought yeah. process when you're sitting with them? Of like, how do I get this person to shrink that plate down in order to reduce energy intake? Yeah. Well, I think the biggest thing, you know, I was talking about before about the population that I'm trying to make the most bang for my buck out of is usually not the bodybuilders. So the amount of objective information is not as important to that person. Mm. You know, the, the person that can't seem to lose body fat and it's affecting their athletic performance is usually not the one counting their macros or interested in counting their macros. So you have to start from a position what they're interested in. And that's usually not counting macros or their micros or, you know, they might be, it might interest them in taking a, a food intolerance test and even just eliminating some foods of, hey, that might be causing inflammation for you. It, it's a great start for them to say, oh, wow, that seems pretty easy for me. I just take that food out of my diet. I feel a little bit better. And now you've gotten that, that small win and you can start adding on to that. So the objective numbers to me aren't that important in making behavior change. They're more for me to look at and understand, am I making the right behavior change? Am I getting the results that I'm looking for? Less so putting that on the athlete to say, hey, you know, you, you need to uh, have this many grams of carbohydrates at this meal. It's a little bit hard, harder to represent what you want them to be eating, but you can also, you know, give them, I think that's where Precision Nutrition did a really good job of, you know, hand sizes and palm and fist and cups or what a plate should look like and giving them visual representations and knowing the person, how they learn and how they process that information of, well, it's a lot easier if I just, Oh, it's a, it's a fistful of for fats. Okay. Well then I can do that. Oh, it's a a cup for carbohydrates or a palm for protein. That's a lot easier than saying, Hey, go to my fitness pal and, and put it in and it's time consuming or just giving them lists of things that are like a, a no fly zone. Hey, you know, we don't want, you know, canola oil in any of our, any of our foods, uh, any of our cooking foods. So that, you know, there's just little, little things you can do. But I think those are still, those are downstream. Those are after you've made the inroads of, well, I guess this guy knows what he's talking about. And I feel a little bit better. And like, I'm losing a little bit of fat. I like the way I'm looking. And then you keep following up on those things of knowing that they care about how they look, or they care about how they feel, or they care about how they're playing or they care about certain foods and you're allowing them to have those in certain certain places and being really intentional about it. So I think knowing the person and, and gaining their trust is an important part of the behavior change part of that. And I, yeah. I really don't think body composition matters unless 
behavior changes involved because yeah. then you're just spinning your wheels. You know, I think what we're really talking about is consistent action on the part of the person trying to change their body composition. Are you objectively evaluating your behavioral changes? Are you looking at it from a pre and post of, hey, I looked at these three big behavioral changes and I wanted to see the actual impact from a body compositional assessment? I mean, big answer, no. In the moment answer, I think it's a accumulation of behaviors over time. And, and what you're doing is you're a guide on their journey. At least that's how I'm, I'm doing it is, is being a guide on the journey. Hey, did we get this breakfast in? Okay, well, we made sure that that was eaten. I didn't say, hey, five out of seven days, you got that. You need to do seven out of seven. I think I'm, I'm generally with them on their journey to make that a habit because I think things get a little bit fragile when you make things required on that day. Well, less like, about the actual requirement. Let's say that you did say, hey, strive to eat breakfast every day. Mm-hmm. And then sure. a week or two weeks or four weeks later, you retest body composition and you see the mm-hmm. impact of that yeah. yourself, more so for yourself. Yeah, no, I, 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 see, I see what you're saying. I haven't done that. I think it's just with the amount of people and so many things happening, especially in season, it's hard to do. If you have the access to do that and you, you have the access to the people every single day and all those things, all those constraints and logistics of it line up, I think it would be an excellent thing to do. Um, but I think it kind of it's it would be for, for the individual as much as the pattern of the, the general, because, you know, someone might feel better not eating breakfast or someone might be, do better eating breakfast and uh, paying attention to those patterns for each person is helpful for them to know what they need to consistently do. Well, I, the reason why I mention it is because we run a nutrition plan at the gym I own, mm-hmm. and the first four weeks are all about behavioral change, and it gets into sleep, hydration, eating more produce, fruits, and vegetables, and being more mindful with your eating, trying to strive mm-hmm. for more slower, delayed. We definitively see a actual increase in body fat in that period, and mm. and if, if it gets to the point where we find that people, well, they're also introducing weight training probably for the first yeah. time, at least in a very like structured setting. And people typically eat more when they're doing that. They actually create this, like what we call feedback loop off of now your strength training and you had peri-workout nutrition of like pre and post, probably mm-hmm. hungry more, probably get to increase that. A lot of people associate the best way to get out of soreness and fatigue is through increasing their energy intake. So it's a natural response to a lot of new but we mm-hmm. do always see with these behavioral changes, actually a negative impact from a body compositional perspective. We mm-hmm. always joke about like when we focus on behavior, they get fatter. But if there is a time sensitive window, meaning that, hey, you, I'm paying you to help me lose weight. I want to lose body fat and I want to lose body mass. It gets into this thing of like, okay, well, behavior is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. But if we're object- objectively evaluated and we're paid, whether we get this person to lose weight or not. Mm-hmm. based off of their achieving a goal well then we start to get into the actual okay here's protein carbs fats here's energy balance and here's routines in order to accommodate that and we were talking about the the precision nutrition fist hand thumb you know i i was just talking to a client the other day he's like i get it i get it. i gotta slap myself in the face eight times a day with fruits and vegetables and i gotta punch myself in the mouth eight times a day with protein i'm like yeah every day you're eight slaps eight eight punches 
not a good day if you only get six, like, and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And he's like, I got to lose 10 pounds in the next four weeks, get ready for a wedding. And he's only looking at me for that. Like, and that's, yeah. I think that's the part too. And the other aspect is, you know, I do want to believe that behavioral change is the most important aspect until we get to a situation where we're actually effectively judged based off of our ability to get someone's body composition. A lot of it's accountability. A lot of it's just holding them to the fire. A lot of them is asking these hard questions about how bad do you want it? What do you want to do for it? And are you willing to count calories, potentially weigh food? Mm -hmm. But I do want to get to the point where if we do have certain archetypes, hey, this person's a low motivation, low skill, knows nothing and not motivated to make any changes. What things, like could be water, it could be better sleep hygiene. It could be those little things that we know are going to make a meaningful difference that actually is going to get momentum from a body composition. Because the one thing that I would say that is probably going to get a lot of momentum is positive results. And if they see yeah. the, the, the concentric circle off of things that are very slow and but not necessarily that invasive, mm-hmm. they're going to be more positively or empowered to keep going. And I think yeah. momentum is a funny thing in terms of body composition. I do think that the, the, the small wins sometimes is even shaping someone's day to just get them out of their own way. Yeah. And I think that's a win a lot of the time of, you know, some, I, I had an athlete who had a really busy travel schedule and the fact that every time they travel, it really, it ran into three days. It was like you travel the night before the t- day you're there and the travel back just for events. And so you're losing three days of good nutrition. And, you know, say you do that on a Tuesday, you know, Wednesday's the event, Thursday back. It's like, oh, it's the weekend. Now it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, diet starts Monday. You just lost six days of, yeah. of good eating. So it was even intent being really intentional about setting up meals for them on the road or, Hey, can you just fast on the plane both ways? So it's just setting up so that they're getting out of their own way so that they're not eating airplane food or they have access to good food while they're away. Because a lot of times I don't, well, I shouldn't even say a lot of times I've noticed that there are times where people think that they're eating well and they're gaining Um, weight and they're gaining body fat. They don't realize the amount of calories they're taking. And they're not tracking their macros. They're not saying, oh, wow, I thought that hamburger was only 300 calories. But with all the excess oil and the condiments and the fries that went along with it and the soda, you know, they're at 1,500 calories without realizing it. And they're like, oh, but all I had was one meal. You know, it was just a a little burger. They don't realize that. And they're not going to. And they're not going to count their calories. So so instead, can we replace that with something? Can we just inform it? Because I don't think informing them is really going to do anything can we take action steps with them like what are the action steps that, that we're going to do and how do we just get them out of their own way mm. so yeah, one, of the, one know, of the big questions i've been asking a lot of weight loss clients lately is are you willing to go to bed hungry yeah how are you hungry or are you bored you know that's yeah. another one yeah and it's funny when they give this like pause of like is that what it's going to take sometimes and yeah. like like and i we get to this point of like get to the end of the night and you have to make a choice of like, man, like yep. I didn't reach my protein goal. Like, or you could just go to bed. Yeah. Like my, my sister-in-law, <laughs> she, she has a rule for her kids, which I think is great. And I, I, you know, it works on four-year-olds and it works on 24 year olds too. She tells her kids, are you hungry? Do you want an apple? And they're like, no, well then you're not hungry and you don't need the food. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I did that with one of the athletes and he's like, that's a great trick. Mm-hmm. You know, every, every yeah. I just keep apples in the house. And if I'm hungry, I'm like, oh, do I want an apple? Not really. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not hungry. Maybe I'm just bored. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, that's the, I think that's the issue with a lot of weight loss people or even weight gain people, like the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Those yeah. are the guys who struggle to either, they get really full fast. They just have a small, like gastro uh, or, or stomach. Uh, they can't mm-hmm. tolerate a lot of food or bolus amounts yeah. of food. And they're not thinking that when they're bored, they should be eating or they're not thinking conscientiously about like, it's going to take a really big energy surplus to reach a bigger body mass. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if you really think about it, the people that you're trying to make, I'd say the majority of people you're trying to make body composition changes with weight gain, weight loss, they're either big or small for a reason. And it's, and it's not just a physical thing. It's a psychological, behavioral, emotional, social, like social, cultural, all those things combined into one of, oh, they're smaller or bigger for a reason because of behavior over time. Mm. And I think that kind of goes back to, you know, you're asking about objective measurements and it's like, you can't really know the sum of something by just taking apart the parts and analyzing those things and putting it back together. You really have to know the thing or the person as the whole being. So that's why spending time with them and getting to know them and what makes them tick and why they eat certain foods or what they think about eating certain foods. Or like you said, hey, are you even willing to go to bed hungry? Are you even willing to change your body composition? How well do you do with discomfort on a daily basis? What is that like? Just getting to know about them helps you navigate the difficulties of changing body composition because it's hard to do. It's hard to lose weight. It's hard to gain weight. It takes effort. It takes emotional effort. It takes uh, you know strategy and logistics of your social life and some things that maybe people don't want to change. So that's mm-hmm. now a constraint that you have to do something different. Yeah. So there's a lot of components that go to it. And it would be really, really easy to give someone a meal plan and say, hey, you got it. Do this. But it just doesn't, it doesn't work in my experience. And if it's been working for other people, then I'd love to have a conversation with them about where I've been going wrong because it would save me a lot of time. But I would say it's, it would, it's a much more enjoyable experience when you really involve yourself in the process and be okay with the results that come out of that because the experience of it and the process of it is really the, the part that matters of, of what kind of change you're making for people. Okay, last question. And I think this one is going to be hopefully one that gets you on your heels a little bit. So the place you're working out with was on the forefront of using body pod, bod pod within an athletic setting. One of the big metrics they looked at was not necessarily body fat, but lean body mass mm-hmm. or non-fat mass. In regards to non-fat mass, which by association, you're going to be, okay, there's a certain limitation to bones and, and organs and what, and what they're going to weigh. In regards to lean muscle mass in different positions and everything else, how much of that body mass change and lean body mass ratio are you looking at and how much of that is impacting your strength training program? The context here is that this is professional football and they've probably got to this point where they have an optimal amount of muscle mass. So you'd like to see it in a certain range to begin with and most likely you're going to be seeing it in that range. Mm. I'm not going to say it's a determinant for success because you have to have a skill to be good at the sport, but it puts you in a position to be good at certain skills. The thing that matters to me more now that we have something like DEXA is where does that mass lie and is it, a, is it functional mass? Does that match up to the strength in which they play with, the strength in the weight room? And can you take that information and... 
not necessarily be predictive with it, but be intentional about what type of training you're going to use in order to make any actionable or meaningful, significant change. You know, if someone has a previous calf strain or multiple calf strains or ankle sprains or a, a knee on that side, and you see a significant difference in muscle mass from one side to the other, you can use that information to be intentional about potentially affecting the risk of injury in the future. Mm. Likewise, you have a guy who has a significantly high amount of mass on his arms and upper body and lower than expected on his lower body. Mm. That person, if they've gotten to this level, are really good at football. But at the same time, can we make them any better or faster because we can somehow rearrange the ratio of muscle mass from upper body to lower body? Does wow. that make a difference? And is that going to make them faster? And I think that's where you can objectively look at things like that, where, oh, if we can just take a little bit of mass, maybe train with less hypertrophy up top and train a little bit more on the bottom, but also make sure there's plenty of neural drive to the legs. Are they carrying around less mass that is unfunctional so that they can move and propel their body in certain ways? And now I'm talking about football. Now, if you have a, a competitive rower or someone in crew or a swimmer like there's so many different sports where the ratio of mass from limb to limb or upper body lower body that it's going to matter depending on what the sport is and so you can analyze that using something like a dexa scan to say is that optimal for what we're trying to do but that also has to match up to you know the function and the strength and and how they use their body because there's so many more factors than just that in coordination to how they play their sport. You know, I've seen guys with tiny little calves be extremely fast and explosive and powerful with big upper bodies. It doesn't mean that it's a, it's a causative thing. It's just something to look at to say, you know, where is their lean mass? Mm. Now, at the same time, I think the caveat to all this is muscle is not just a static tissue. You know, you're, you're, it's, your con their metabolism is constantly changing how much lean mass you have. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be growing. It's going to be shrinking. It's going to anabolism, catabolism. There's going to be constant change in that. So it's a general snapshot of where your muscle mass is. It, I mean, it's not going to change drastically in a day, but to say that that is your static amount of muscle mass and that's going to stay for six weeks, you know, that's, <clears throat> I'd say that's a little bit reductionist to say. So it's a general idea about how much lean mass you have. And it's influenced by water intake and intra and extracellular water. And, and those are, you know, you're never going to get a true picture, but you can get a really good snapshot in that moment in time to say, is this appropriate for what we're trying to do with the function of the body? So I just have a request here when this will be the last request, last statement. Are you familiar with a minotaur versus a centaur, correct? Sure, I, I get what so, you're saying. So what we're saying is that we want Minotaur is bull top, human lower, centaur yeah. is horse bottom, human top. Yeah. We want centaurs playing football. Like we want a centaur archetype, right? That's what we're depending saying. On, depending on how much they're hitting someone though. You know, you you need you still need some mass in your upper body. Mm, mm. So if you're a high contact player, Minotaur archetype, if you're a just a general player that doesn't make a lot of contact centaur. That's what we're looking for, right? And I want to be in a room and talking to a coach, maybe looking at someone in the at a combine and say, 
he's a real centaur guy and he's going to be able to play in our system at a high level every Sunday of every single game that we play. That's it. That's all you need to know. Right? Centaur. centaur guy, sign him. I don't care what we got to do. We need more centaurs, less minotaurs. We got plenty of minotaurs. I, I would love, I personally, I would love if that evolved from this DEXA scan, this high level, high, you need a radiologist in here and you're looking over the radiologist's shoulder while you're wearing your protective radiology a- gear. Centaur, huh? Like, whoa, that's 60% bottom heavy, right? That's good. That's good. That's what we're looking for. Nudging a coach in the room. Real centaur guy. I love that. So great. Awesome. So we've established that. DEXA is the now the, the preliminary step to determine centaur versus minotaur. Yeah. Great. Love it. I'm sure that's what they always envisioned too, right? Like the perfect, right? Like Wolf's Law and Sarcopenia and all that stuff they were trying to find out was completely, completely just a misleading indicator why we need to invest a lot of money in developing this technology so we can just find out centaur minotaur that's it dude dude love that high five i can't wait till that just goes completely (laughs) completely now into the next level of like oh man i can't wait to start classifying what would you say you are a centaur minotaur Uh, obviously a centaur but also hybrid yeah i have a centaur lower and a minotaur upper body yeah, you're, you're a complete hybrid. Yeah. What's the what's the like the bird mythological creature there? Not a phoenix, but a Pegasus. Sure, Pegasus is horse and bird, right? Yeah. Hybrid. You're well, a hybrid. They can be wings. You're you're minotaur, minocentaur. You know. <laughs> I think I'm a. I think I'm also a hybrid. I think I'm yeah. committed to a very yeah. aggressive lower body since I've turned twenty. You know. Yeah. So awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, man. This is going to be a real smooth episode, if you don't mind me saying. Oh, I don't mind at all. (laughs) All right, man. Have a great rest of your day, man. You too. If you like what we're talking about here on this podcast, you're definitely going to love this next thing. It's called Strength Deficit, your seminal resource to developing eccentric versus concentric ability with your athletes. We have a book, we have courses, we have everything you need to be able to implement, understand, and be the best strength deficit practitioner you could possibly be. You can get all of these resources at phpodcast.com and you'll become the best, and I mean this, the best possible strength coach in your setting. I hope you could tell how passionate I am about body compositional testing. When I think about what we're trying to accomplish as a strength conditioning program, having a big influence, having something that makes a difference, body compositional is one of the few things that we could do that gives us a proxy to our level of influence, not only within the weight room, but outside the weight room. It is a really important metric. And it's also too a big foundational piece to lean body mass and what's going to be a big impact on producing force, especially at a high rate, as well as looking at behaviors habits. And there's a central theme that we're trying to establish here that good coaching can be supported and cooperated by your testing. And that is a really important thing to say, because we want to establish we are good at what we do. And there's only one way to do that, show it objectively. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you liked the episode, if there was a lot of big takeaways for you, I highly suggest you become a member of the PH curriculum. It's going to get you access to 50 modules, all of our web shows, all of the web shows, notes, transcripts, suggested resources. It is a 
incredible resource for any strength conditioning coach. It's going to be something that as you start to look at, this is really good information. There's a lot of information. I'm listening to this while I'm driving. I'm listening to this while I'm doing something else. But I have to constantly stop and start. We got you. It's going to be at the PH curriculum. Get on the web shows and see all the notes because we did we took care of all that for you. So I hope you guys enjoyed. Get access to all the notes and everything else, the PH curriculum, and we'll see you guys next week.